What's up? What's the worst boss you've had? You don't need to name names. What's the worst boss you've had? And something that was just really stuck in your craw about it. Or has everybody just had great bosses? Forever? Okay, I'm seeing some heads shaking. No. Anybody care to share about a, a bad boss kind of situation? Yeah, Jeff. Um, worked for the same guy for a really long time. Like yeah. A service report and him tell you like you're lying you no know you're not wow and you say i've worked this many hours yeah yeah and he tells you you're not yeah so just yeah. tells you right to your face no you're lying to me even though you had had that long relationship oh yeah. where's the trust yeah other others of you bad bosses you want to share about it come on it's me a group therapy <laughs> there's something you got to get off your off your chest yeah oh go ahead Hans. Person. Yeah. And uh, I was working as a uh, computer tech. Yeah. Uh, and one of the servers went missing. I had reported until three weeks before that the door was broken. Oh. So uh, my, the dean calls me up there and says, What are you doing that for? It's like, I didn't do anything. Yeah. I tried I to tell you. It. Yeah. And you ignored it. And you ignored it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, Paul, you were going to. Yeah. Lacked moral values. Yes. I mean, this is couldn't trust a word coming out of him. Yeah. I mean, this is the uh, the thing that comes up again and again. If you have a boss who's a bad boss, there's almost certainly some kind of moral failures along the way. Jeremy, were you gonna? Oh, a little bit. Yeah. And it, you could really tell because he would fit fits of anger and stuff mm. like that. And he would take a. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So, I mean, when you get a, a boss who's having his own issues, as anyone may, fair enough, but not to take it out then on your, on your employees. And that's really what we see in, in Exodus. You've got a Pharaoh who's angry and upset about the way things are going. He's like, I'm going to take this out on not employees, but these uh, slaves that I have. I'm going to make life a lot worse for them. There's a lot in these chapters. I want to spend most of our time talking about two things. One, the plagues, and two, this question of Pharaoh's hard heart. If there's other things you want to bring up, we'll have uh, opportunity for that as well. But those are the two big things I want to tackle. So just briefly, an overview of the chapters that uh, we've read this past week, chapters 5 through 10 of Exodus. So chapter 5 recounted Moses and Aaron's first visit to Pharaoh, which went about how you would expect. <laughs> chapter 6, God promises deliverance. And in our service on Wednesday, um, I focused on that. If you weren't able to make that, you can go back and um, listen to that service or watch that service. But we talked about what does it mean for God to be redeemer? We saw that there's really four pieces to that. First of all, it means rescue and deliverance, <coughs> promise that he, he gives to his people. Secondly, that they're going to know him. There's relationship to it. Thirdly, that they're not just going to know him individually, but corporately. He says, I'll make you a people. Okay, I'm bringing you into a family. And then fourth, there's an uh, inheritance. I'll give you a land, the promised land. And this continues to be true for us when we think about what it means for God to be our redeemer. And as I say, I unpacked that a little bit on Wednesday evening. Then 
chapter 7 is when we get into the plagues proper. And I say plagues, the, the Hebrew word really means signs, sometimes signs and wonders. Strictly speaking, it doesn't say plagues. That's how we've uh, come to understand it and interpret it. But strictly speaking, it's a sign and wonder, miraculous, powerful deeds that God does. Um, so in the chapter 7, we see the first plague of blood, turning the Nile into blood. Chapter 8, plagues 2 through 4, frogs, gnats, flies. Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart. Chapter 9, plagues 5 through 7, livestock boils and hail, oh my. Plagues 8 and 9 in chapter 10, locusts and darkness. And as we continue on reading this week, we'll find the 10th uh, and final plague or sign and wonder, which is the death of the firstborn. I put a, a table on here for you, a little chart, and this is drawn from different commentaries um, to see that there's some structure to it. So many commentaries will point out that there's really um, three sets of three when it comes to these plagues. And they're kind of broken down. Um, I mean, it's very commonplace to, to note that it's getting worse, right? They're escalating. So those first three are, I mean, bothersome is probably too mild of a word. But I mean, it, it's, it's bad, but it's not quite totally painful yet, depending on how you feel about frogs. Hmm. Um, and then there's that, the second triad, flies, livestock, and boils, where now it's getting painful. Now and you're even seeing some, some death with that as well of animals. And then the third triad is really destructive, and again, deadly, of hail, locusts, and darkness. And then finally, the most deadly lethal of all, the one that stands apart, uh, the death of the firstborn, that tenth plague. Um, with each of these, we're seeing different things that are, are happening, ways that God is going to battle against Egypt, against Pharaoh, but we can't miss this. Flip to Exodus chapter 12. There is more going on here with all of these plagues than just God beating up on, on Pharaoh and Egypt. Flip to Exodus chapter 12. God says in Exodus 12, 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. You catch that? On all the gods of Egypt. So Egypt has its own kind of parochial gods, a whole panoply, a whole pantheon of gods, many of them associated especially with physical elements, in particular, the Nile. It's not for nothing that God starts with the Nile. So with each of these plagues, each of these signs and wonders, it's not only directed at Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but also, and arguably even more so, this is a theological battle. This is God showing that the, the so-called lowercase g gods of Egypt are nothing. And that, as he says over and over again, he is the God of all the earth. That he is not just some... He's, not, he's the God of the Israelites. They are his chosen people. But he is not geographically circumscribed the way that the ancient world understood their gods to be so often, where it was like, okay, you've got the gods of Egypt. You have the, the gods of Greece. You have the God. But he's saying, I am the God of all creation, and I am executing my judgment on these would-be gods of Egypt, which I think it, it's fair to say are, in some respects, um, demonic puppets, right? These are, to the extent that they have any reality, it's as um, uh, servants of the evil one. Right? 
So that's what, just big picture, what we've got going on with these plagues, with these signs and wonders, is God is going to bat and going to battle against the gods of Egypt and uh, Pharaoh and his unwillingness to let God's people go. And so the Lord unleashes these uh, instruments of, of wrath upon him. There's a lot of ways that we could go about this, and, but maybe the, the simplest way is just to ask, after the death of the firstborn, which of these plagues seems worse to you? <laughs> There's a lot of bad ones, but which of these have really stood out to you as being just especially gross or painful or diff- what are, which of them are really, really catch you? Yeah, Ethan. Well, the firstborn's death, yeah, I think that goes without saying. So after, after the firstborn's death, I'd say, I think that's kind of in a class of its own for sure. But other ones, yellow in. Where does the weasel fall in? The plague of weasels infiltrating the land. No, that's our, that's our church, is we're the plague of weasels now on the world. Um, yeah, David and then Matt. The locusts. Oh, okay, how come? They eat all the food. How are you going to live? I mean, they come through. And you guys probably know this continues to be a plague on the world from time to time. Locusts will come through, and they are just so incredibly destructive. Yeah, Matt? I thought kind of the darkness and like just the fact that it completely blocked out everything yeah. of the hope could be seen sure. as for yeah. many Egyptians. It was a spiritual darkness as well as a physical darkness. I mean, it says it was a darkness that could be felt. And if you've ever been, I remember when um, we lived in, in Spokane, I've talked before about the windstorm we had that knocked out all the power. And we went from being in you know, a, a relatively large city, mid-sized city, where you go out at night and even though it's dark out, there's so much light that you don't even think about. Even in Arcadia, we've got our street lights and lights from homes and so forth. And just like that, it went to pitch black. It was spooky. It was super spooky. Yeah, yeah. Can we go to verse 4, please, on chapter 11? Okay, well, so that's a little bit ahead of us, but was there a particular question that you oh, have? I might, oh, that's about the, um, that's about the 10th um, plague. It, it is about the, about the 10th plague. Um, but so just, uh, yeah, let me look at, at it real quick. So... He says, so Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I'll go into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. So, yeah, this is God. So, who actually, he causes the children, they, he doesn't actually go in and kill. Wow. What, what, what is this? Oh, what is this? <laughs> I mean, the destroying angel is how it's put, the angel of death. But, um, okay. We can't get God off the hook here. I mean, he, he is the one who is, who is originating this yeah. and executing this. Yeah, I mean, he had said and telegraphed and said, listen, you need to let my firstborn go. This is how he referred to the sons of Israel. They are his firstborn child, so to speak, or else I will take your firstborn. And that's exactly how it plays out. Yeah. So question, yeah, go ahead, George. Um, I have a problem Moses throwing the staff down to turn it into a snake. Yes. Okay, that's one thing. Okay. Can't figure out why he did it. Sure. Um, but then Pharaoh's wizards did the same. Yes. Thing. What, what is it? And then what, was it the first plague that um, 
Moses did and then Pharaoh's people repeated it. Yeah. Yes. No, I mean... What, what is this? You know, okay, I yeah. can do this, you can do that. I'm, there's very much, at the beginning, there's this anything you can do, I can do better sort of thing. Yeah. First, in terms of the serpent. I mean, it's, it's an enacted sign of, hey, listen, I'm, he throws it down, turns into a serpent. Although I learned this week that the Hebrew word there for serpent is not the same one as you have in Genesis 3. And in fact, it's a broader term that could also be translated, get this, crocodile. And I'm like, that kind of changes things a little. There's Niles and the crocodile, right? Um, and so then... Thank you, thank you. That is one big crocodile. Crocodiles in the Nile. And, and uh, I mean, to, to picture that instead where the crocodile is swallowing up other little crocodiles. But I mean, I think the, the long and short of it is God is showing, listen, I, I have the power. I'm going to swallow up whatever you can throw at my way. I've got much more power. Now, in terms of his wizards, I like how you put that, his magicians that are doing the same thing, I've thought about this. I mean, yeah, go ahead, Nina. Well, you know, if you've ever gone to a magic show, right. it's sleight of hand. Yeah. yeah. You know, they can, they can make it appear like, sure. you know. I, and so maybe there's some of that. But I am inclined to think, you know what? There are spiritual powers at work and that people are able to tap into these things. Now, not necessarily for good, that there's such a thing as like kind of dark, dark magic. I mean, I don't want to get too woo-woo here, but... Um, it's, I don't think it's beyond the, the pale of belief. If we believe that we live in a world um, w in which there is more than meets the eye, and not just in a transformer sense, that there is more going on than we realize, that there are spiritual realities all around us, there's no reason for me to think that these magicians, wizards, what have you, could to some extent tap into that as well. Um, but it is, I mean, it's, it's a curious thing. They get to a point, although, where they also have to say, right, this is beyond, this is above our pay grade, too. Was there, yeah, Sandy? Could it be through the devil? Well, yeah, I mean, so Sandy asked, could it be through the devil? And I think this is where, you know, they're playing with the dark arts, right. where the evil one is like, here, let me help you out a little bit. You guys can do it, too. Yeah. can do stuff for Jesus. Yes. Can, you know, if you do this, I can do this. Yep, yep, that's right. Yeah, Chip. If we believe in the supernatural, it goes both ways. It goes both ways, that's right. If we believe in the supernatural, it goes both ways. I mean, for those of you, if you watch the show Stranger Things at all. This especially brings it out where, although interestingly with Stranger Things, it goes in the opposite direction where there's like only the bad guys. We don't ever see, the, like, aren't there good guys in here? Um, but it just gives you the sense that there are realities that we're not able to see perhaps, but that are definitely there. Obviously, C.S. Lewis famously brought this out in his book, Screw Tape Letters. And, you know, this is, where, this is what the devil wants to do is to, keep himself on the DL in many ways, on the down low, so we don't recognize it. But he's out there. He's active, for sure. Yeah, Ann. Except the magicians were not able to get rid of the They're like, yeah, we can do that. Right. How <laughs> you turn it back? Yeah, uh, but we better start uh, doing plan B and digging along here, trying to find some other sources of water. And just a, a quick note on the Nile. Why was it significant that... The first one is, is at the Nile. I mean, what, what, was the, what was the import of the Nile to Egypt? And still, to this day, Without the Nile, there's no Egypt. Without the, without the Nile, there's no Egypt. Yeah, Matt, is that what you're going to say, too? Um, 
I was going to say that the Nile is a massive basis for all of the gods in Egypt as well. That too. Yeah, for sure. So it has a spiritual and theological significance and also very much an economic one because I mean, this is what it uh, is all dependent on. Priscilla's not in here, is she? So I know Priscilla and Bob took a, a, um, a cruise down the Nile a year or two ago um, to ask them about that. But from everything I've read, it's basically desert. As far as the eye can see, it's just desert. And then you have this incredible ribbon of water which flows south to north. And that it floods every year. And that's basically the, the basis for that. I mean, in the ancient world, this was the basis for their economy. They were totally and utterly dependent on the Nile. And so for God to, for his first sign, like, I'm going to shut down your economy for a week. How do you like them apples, right? I mean, right off the bat. Not to mention the fact, I mean, it also, I think, calls back to... Pharaoh's first sign, if you will, was we're going to start throwing babies into the Nile, right? And like this, let's, let's remind you of all the blood that you have spilled to bring us to this point, too. Yeah. Yeah, Paul. I had a question. One of these was killed off all the livestock. Yeah. Then later, killed off more livestock. Well, so there, um, there's lots of livestock to go around. The Israelite livestock survived, Yes. And I'm, we see this too. One of the other interesting things, not a big point is made about it, but at a couple points along the way, we see that there are Egyptians who are listening and, and some of whom who are attending to the word of the Lord and, and believing. So perhaps there were some along the way who were like, listen, I'm not on board with this stuff. Like I'm, I'm listening to what Moses is saying and escape for at least a little while. Yeah. Other questions about the plagues or plagues that stood out to you or ones you're, you're wondering about? Um, like I say, pretty much all of them have some uh, correspondence to Egyptian gods, and I'm no expert in all of the different gods, but a good study Bible will tell you about you know, this god and that god, which are also being rendered powerless in the face of, of the true god, the god of Israel, um, as a result of these, uh, these plagues, these signs and wonders as well. But suffice it to say, over and over and over again, God is um, showing that he is the one not only who's the most powerful, but that ultimately he's going to act to save his people no matter what it takes. Um, over and over, he is, is working in that way. Yeah. Pharaoh, well, how can he let these things keep on happening? Doesn't he believe after all the trouble right. that, that any one of these plagues caused? And he thinks it's not going to happen again? Right. I, this... Uh, so this is a great question. It's a good segue. Like, how can Pharaoh keep doing this? Like, how are you not, how are you, I mean, hello, McFly, like, come too. Don't you see what's happening? And this is where we get to the question of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And I want to spend some, some time with this because this is a big theological issue, not just with respect to Pharaoh, but a larger thread in the scriptures um, to, to discuss. Maybe I'll just pause there real quick before we dive into that more deeply. Any other just questions about the plagues or about those uh, chapters, chapters 5 through 10, other things? Yeah, go ahead, Hans. Uh, so, 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 uh, getting out of the blood, yeah. and then you got rotting fish around, and you got flies and gnats. Yep. <coughs> and yeah, no, there, there's definitely a progression to it. 
And it's been pointed out, commentators will draw attention to, well, even how there's that structure with the, you know, it's not just willy-nilly. So there's the progression to it, but also the, you know, the three triads. There's the sense that there's a deliberateness about it. And in some ways that is, uh, evokes or resonates with creation. We saw back in Genesis, there's this very structured sense of God creating. And it's been pointed out that here with the plagues, it's not beat for beat, but it's almost, it's a, an, a decreation where it's like God is reversing creation, bringing things down to the studs, as it were, until finally, what's the, the penultimate plague, the ninth plague? As Matt mentioned, it's darkness, right? It's almost like we're back to that state of that, you know, kind of pre-creational tohu vabohu state where it was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the earth, right? And so it's kind of bringing us back. It's, it's unrolling and unraveling the work of creation until it's, it's back at the very bottom. And then God's going to build it back up again. Yeah. All right, then. Well, then let's, let's talk about Pharaoh's hard heart and who's to blame for Pharaoh's hard heart. Is it God or is it Pharaoh? And the short answer, Tim, is yes. yes. Exactly. The short answer is yes. Okay. So too long, do not listen. The short answer is it's both God's fault and Pharaoh's own fault of who's hardening his heart. But let's unpack that and pull that thread a little bit because we see just some of the biblical data here. Ten times the hardening of the heart is attributed to Pharaoh. Ten times it's attributed to God. So ten times you have it either saying, and then Pharaoh hardened his heart or Pharaoh's heart was hard. Or then ten times you have the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. (laughs) You have both of those. But notice this, God's hardening of Pharaoh happens only after the king hardens his own heart. So the first time it happens, if you glance back on your chart on the previous, is with the sixth plague. So with the first five plagues, with each of those, Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. Pharaoh's hardening his heart. Pharaoh's hardening his heart. His heart was hard. He refused to repent, refused to turn. We get to a turning point with the sixth one where it says, and then the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, it it should be noted that God kind of called his shot, as it were, back in chapter 4. He said, listen, this is how it's going to play out. Uh, But we need to recognize Pharaoh is not a robot in this. He's not an automaton or a puppet. He's never presented that way. He retains his agency, which is to say his capacity to act or not act, and his responsibility. That's very clear. It's very clear. It's not showing like, Okay, Pharaoh is just some you know, puppet in God's plan. There's nothing he can do about it. And in fact, all the way up, even to yesterday's reading in chapter 10, there's this appeal to Pharaoh to turn, to repent, someone's to come back. There's a sense, well, Terence Fredheim, a uh, uh, biblical commentator, uh, he says, an act of hardening does not make one totally or permanently impervious to outside influence. It doesn't turn the heart off and on like a faucet. And what he means by that is he's saying, listen, even as Pharaoh's heart is hardened and hardening, we see that he's still open to outside influences. There's moments where he's, he starts to say, all right, you guys can go. But wait a second, who are you? who's on this list? Not all of you can go, only some of you can. Um, or my personal favorite, when Pharaoh says to Moses, like, no, what you really mean is you only wanted the guys to go. I know what you really mean. No, you don't mean that everybody's going to go. I know what you mean. Um, there's still that, that influence within him. And uh, one last point to, to say on this, 
It's clear throughout the scriptures, and in particular, even in the book of Exodus, that the Egyptian king does not have the market cornered on hard hearts. Israel itself is spoken of as having a hard heart over and over again, of being a stubborn and stiff-necked people. So that needs to be said as well. But let's, let's break this down a little bit more. This question of, okay, so who is responsible? Who, who hardens the heart? I mean, as we, as we dig deeper into this, we're starting to get into that question of, you know, what about election, predestination, free will? This is a paradox, the heart of the scriptures. You guys know how much I love paradoxes. This is very much a paradox of the human choice and the divine will. And it's one of these big questions of the scriptures and of Christian theology where it's easy to fall off on one way or the other. Okay? So in the one direction, there are those who only emphasize the divine aspect. Okay? God is the one who's in charge, and he is just sovereignly um, affecting all things according to his will. And a, a verse, a scripture that often gets invoked in this regard from Romans 9, which is also quoting in Exodus, Got it for you here. He says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's up to God. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Okay? So, some folks read that. And they say, listen, case closed, it's perfectly clear, it's all on God. God chooses, if I can broaden the question, God chooses who goes to heaven, who goes to hell. This is what's um, known as a position called double predestination. Okay, So he predestines, he predestines people to heaven, he predestines people to hell, and there's no, there's no choice in the matter one way or the other. He hardens whom he wills, he has mercy on whom he wills, sorry. Uh, so this is, there are Christians who hold this position, and there's biblical data to support it. What could be a weakness of that position? And by weakness, I mean, you know, we're a Bible study here. Well, how, do, how does that not uh, account for all the biblical data, if I can put it that way? How does, what, what's that missing? Yeah, Isn't that kind of him working against his own will? Like Say more. Wanting everyone to be in heaven? Okay, so... Predestining them to the opposite? Okay, good. So we know that from the scriptures, 1 Timothy 2, for instance, God desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. Well, is it true or false? Oh, okay. So then it's like, well, okay, where, how does that fit in? We could go to other scriptures where it speaks of, of God's desire. And Romans 11 also he says, he consigns all to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on all. He wants all people to be saved. Jesus, I mean, for God so loved the world. world that God gave his only son. God did not just love the select you know, few, his frozen chosen, right? Um, and everybody else, he said, well, good luck. He, he loved the world. First uh, John chapter 2 says, Jesus is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for all people, for all people, okay? So, yeah, as Lily put it, is God's will working against God's will? Okay, so then others will go in the opposite direction. They'll say, no, 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 no. That's, that's rubbish. It's not that God is just in charge and you know, double predestination. It's the opposite. It's all about human choice. 
It's all about what humans do. So they, they choose whether or not they're going to be saved or damned, whether they're going to believe or disbelieve. So, for instance, you know, uh, Stephen says in his famous sermon in Acts, he appeals, he speaks to the, um, the Israelites here. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. So if you ask Stephen, who's to blame for those who are in hell? Who's to blame for those who resist God? What would he say? Themselves. They themselves. You're responsible. Free will. To begin, he's guilty because he chose to... And then God went with it. Okay, well, so this is, that's a, a, more, a more nuanced position. That's good. We'll get there in just a moment. So you have folks then in this direction who are like, it all, well, all that matters is free will and human choosing. You choose against God or you choose for God. What are the weaknesses of that position? Can you think of anything that um, is, is uh, insufficient biblically from that perspective? Yes, the Holy Spirit is in us. Okay, the Holy We're Spirit is in us. In us. Yep. We, you know, in our catechism, we say, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Christ Jesus our Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit is called me by the gospel. Okay, good. Other thoughts on that? Insufficiencies with the, the free will answer. Yeah, Ann? Yeah. Raise himself. The dead man can't make a decision for, for Christ. That's right. I mean, to put it just as simply and straightforwardly as possible, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. The, the scripture says we are at enmity with God. You know, touched on that in the sermon today. We are not, Jesus says to the disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. See? And so there's this side of it, that if you are saved, it's because Jesus chooses you. It's because God elects you. It's because he brings you to life through the power of his Holy Spirit. And yet it does say, well, if, but if you're damned, if you resist him, then that's your own fault. Well, what do we do with all this, right? Friends, this is, this is why we have paradox, right? A paradox is when you have two things that are seemingly incompatible or contradictory that you hold together at the same time. And the scripture does this all over the place. And why is, is, is God able to do that? Because he's God. And as it's pointed out sometimes, it's like we live in 2D land, Right? Whereas God is working in 3D and more, right? That there are things that we are not able to reconcile in our human understanding. And the scripture will just put it out there. The scripture will say at the same time, both that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Your salvation is fully dependent on God bringing you to life. And also that you are responsible if you turn away from him. That just as it was with Pharaoh, if you harden your own heart, you harden your own heart. You're the one to blame for that, and it's not you being a puppet or an automaton. It's both of these things at the same time. Now, let's bring it together a little bit, especially when it comes to the story of Pharaoh. And this, as it was kind of alluded to just a moment ago, we see this progression where Pharaoh himself is, is hardening his heart. And then at some point, God is like, okay, if that's what you want, that's what you'll get. Romans 1 says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That phrase, gave them up, should put chills down your spine, because this, this is really the nature of divine judgment. It's not God being 
capricious. It's not God being unfair or unjust, but it's God saying, if this is what you want, okay. Psalm 81, but my people didn't listen to my voice. Israel wouldn't submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. But get this, oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. God's desire is for people to be saved. His desire is uh, Ezekiel 18. You go to Ezekiel, that scary Old Testament prophet. What does God say in Ezekiel? I do not desire in the death of anyone, declares the Lord, but that all would turn from their evil ways and live. And so we have this paradoxical statement before us that God is the one who is in charge of all things. Nothing happens apart from his will. And yet at the same time, we still have that that human responsibility, that accountability for our sinful nature. Sandy, you raise your hand. Okay. Okay. I know, there's a lot of us scratching. What do we, what do, we do with this? He gives like, the choice before he hardens you, too. Right? He gave Pharaoh a chance. He gave Pharaoh a chance. Just like us in Eden, he gives us the chance. He gave, he gave people the, the chance in Eden as well. Yeah, Anne? That's true. He disciplines him. Yeah. Too. Yep. And so could be said that you know, God holds them to a higher standard. I, he's yes. given them the authority. Yep. And now this is what Pharaoh is doing with it. Right. And now he's given him enough rope to hang himself. Oof. Yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, we see that again and again in the scriptures. God holds leaders accountable in a way that even more so than, you know, those who, who come underneath of them. Is he yeah. also well, exactly. So, I mean, the, it's not the case that they don't well, have responsibility, too. Well, I don't know. It was not a democratically held election, I'll put it that way. <laughs> no, that's right. I mean, this is where it's like, ah, that doesn't seem fair. They're under the, the regime. But as I alluded to before, there is room for the individual people to repent, to trust in the, the word of God, where they did not experience the, um, uh, the effects of the, of the plague. So, that just gives us a glimmer, a little picture into the fact that God wants people to actually repent. He's not just trying to be a bully. Okay? Yeah, Chip. He does kill all the firstborn, though. He does kill all the firstborn. They yeah. didn't have a say. Right. At that point. I mean, we're assuming they're babies, but the firstborn could have no, been. No, no, yeah, it's not babies necessarily. Right. But, but so that seems capricious. It seems, it seems devastating from, like, uh, that God can do that. Yeah. And. Right. Yeah, and so I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the, the word capricious, but is it is it judgment? Is it wrathful? I would say yeah. Um, but is it just? I mean, again, how do you how do you want to understand justice? But through the, the lens of the scriptures and God's purposes and the opportunities given, we say, yeah, it's just. It's harsh. Is extremely harsh. There's no quite. I mean, God says as much. I'm going to deal with the Egyptians harshly. It's the word He uses. So. It's harsh. And so I want to resist the temptation also to get God off the hook, right? Because and, God could have done this a different way. Perhaps. I mean, you go down that rabbit hole, it's like, yeah, it's, it's the sliding doors. But would the but, warning to everyone else have been as strong? Would the warning, yeah, exactly. Would the war- because this story went through the entire world and they knew. Yes. I mean, this is, this is now resounding throughout all creation. That's why he says, I want all the world 
to know. Um, yeah, Jay? Well, it's kind of the, nobody questions the fact that God would say bless Abraham and his descendants sure. when he's been born. Like, right. Abraham's descendants were blessed on the merits of Abraham. Right. Is it so crazy to think that the son could be cursed would be the, the sins of the father and sure. the sons? Yeah. Like, I mean, you, you tend to think of children as innocent, but Correct. God often holds offspring accountable for yeah. That's very well put. No, that's exactly right. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's harsh. It's hard not to come off as sounding un, unfeeling or cold, but they're sinners too. Those firstborn that, that lost their lives were sinful and dead in their trespasses apart from the miraculous working of, of God there. So did they deserve it? You know, what, what do we deserve in our sinful nature? What we deserve is death. To the extent that we receive life and the opportunity, the possibility of life, well, as I said in the sermon, that's the surprise. That's the grace and the gift. That's the unexpected. The default, the neutral state, is death. Yeah. Do you think Pharaoh was a little child? Okay. Oh, <laughs> 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 he was a firstborn. Let's get into some psychology here. Evidently, he was not a firstborn. That's right. He, he asked, do you think Pharaoh was a, was a middle child? Oh. <laughs> I want to conclude with a couple of thoughts here. One from our Lutheran Confessions and one from C.S. Lewis. Um, our, our Lutheran Confessions Book of Concord has a great section on predestination and election. And if you're interested in this, just a few pages, I think, states this really succinctly. But here's kind of their bottom line. It says, this predestination of God is not to be investigated in the secret counsel of God but to be sought in the word of God where it's also revealed. But the word of God leads us to Christ, who himself is the book of life, in whom all are written and elected are to be saved in eternity. As it is written, Ephesians 1, he hath chosen us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. If we treat this just as an idle um, topic of speculation, as a logical conundrum that we're trying to piece together, you're only going to drive yourself crazy. If, if you're wondering about election, am I predestined? Who is? Who isn't? Look to Christ. Okay? Live like a weasel, right? To, to coin a phrase there. Cling to Christ. When predestination is talked about, in particular in the New Testament, it's only ever used as a source of comfort, as a way of saying, listen, are you worried that your faith isn't strong enough? Are you, are you worried whether or not you, you belong to God? Listen, he, predestined, he chose you before the foundation of the world, y'all. So great is his grace. It's that, that buffer of his salvation that's given to us. And then finally, from C.S. Lewis, I know I've appealed to this passage before, from The Great Divorce. He says, there's only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. God desires all people to be saved. Some people aren't. This is why we continue to go out to South Africa and Bear Lake and everywhere in between to continue proclaiming the good news of deliverance that we have in Jesus because apart from him, we can do nothing. So then, remember, as we said on, on Wednesday, there is a Redeemer. Christ Jesus, God's own Son, who gave himself for us, and that's that who we hang our hat upon and where our hope is founded. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, 
Pastor Johnson is going to be leading Bible study. He may or may not continue us through Exodus. That's kind of your prerogative when you're the guy who comes in. We sort of let you do what you want to do. So he, he may do Exodus. He may do something different. But uh, I hope you keep up with your Dwell Richly readings. The emails will continue to go out and keep us uh, going along the way. Our Wednesday services will still be focused on Exodus as well. But please keep us in your prayers while we're traveling. And uh, we'll stay in touch as well. We we'll look forward to being back here in a couple of weeks. God be with you. Okay.